Today's reading is from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 15. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his rose and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me? When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horse and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot, and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went with him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? And how much more then when he tells you, Wash and be cleansed. So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored, and he became clean like that of a young boy. The Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. Just before Phil comes up, I'd like to quickly pray uh, for him. Lord, we thank you for your scripture that comforts and reminds us of your promises, plan, and provision. Please fill, please fill Phil with the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we think on these things and your message here today, please open our hearts and minds to hear and understand. Amen. It's really good to see you this morning and for you to be here. Um, please do have your Bibles open to that passage. It'd be lovely to look at it together 
and follow uh, through it together. We're going to look at um, from verses 5 to 15. Last week we looked at verses 1 to 5. And for those of you who weren't here last week, uh, this chapter is set around 800, uh, probably 900 to 800 BC. It's a history, the the book of two kings that, that we're going through is a history book of the Bible that records the history of Israel in the years that lead up to its destruction in 586 BC. And the storyline of the book slows down to focus on this man called Naaman. He he wasn't an Israelite. He was a military leader of the country of Aram, Israel's biggest enemy at the time. And Naaman was a great man, but as verse verse 1 tells us, rather, he had leprosy. And the first five verses that we looked at last week show us that although he had everything, actually, he also had leprosy. He had nothing. And he could do nothing to deal with that greatest problem. But it just so happens uh, that a, a little slave girl in his household who was an Israelite told him where to find help. Go and see the prophet in Israel, she says, Elisha the prophet of the living God. And we have to remember that that was a deeply humiliating thing for Naaman to do. Israel was his enemy. He was the military leader of Aram, the, the world's superpower at the time. Probably on the, on, on, at the top of his to-do list was to go and wipe out Israel. So to suddenly go and actually ask for help, it's like saying, you know, oh. You need, to, you need to scrub your to-do list today and, 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 and do something completely the opposite. But he goes. And what he learns in this passage about God is that God is way, 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 way more than a genie in a bottle. He's the God who calls us into a personal relationship with himself. He's the creator of the world. So we're going to look through this passage at the shifts in Naaman's thinking that led him to, to that point, to realizing God is the God of the universe, the creator, and his personal Lord and Savior too. And I pray that in doing so, we see the shifts that need to happen to us as well in order to meet with God ourselves. And I don't know where you are this morning spiritually. I don't know where you are mentally or where you are emotionally. But this morning, I promise you that by looking at the living God's words and hearing his words, you will encounter him in a way that you least expect this morning in a way that, like Naaman, will change us. Let me pray now and ask that that would happen. Dear Father God, your word is powerful. We saw that last week, and we know that this week. We know that your word uh, created this world. We know that your word changes hearts and souls and minds and emotions of people throughout the world even today. And we ask, Lord God, that you would visit us this morning. And open our eyes to what your word says. Lord, may we too meet with the living God. We pray this in your name. Amen. So what are those shifts that need to happen? What are those shifts that need to happen? The first is we need to shift away from what we expect God to be. We need to shift away from what we expect God to be. So look at verse 5 to 7 with me. 
So Naaman left, that's it, to Israel, um, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Massive wealth. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, read, with this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. So the writer explains, Naaman goes to Israel with the full force of who he was. Verse 9 tells us he'd brought horses and chariots as long as well, and they were the kind of battle tanks of his era. So it's an impressive expedition. He brings his money, his power, and his connections, his letter from the king of Aram, the, powerful, the most powerful man on the borders of Israel, and he goes to the king of Israel. Why does he go to the king of Israel? Well, that tells us Naaman thought that the God of Israel functioned like the gods of every other nation. Because for every other nation, the gods and religion of the nation were an extension of the power of the nation itself. In other words, for every other nation, uh, or, or, or relig- uh, for every other nation, a religion or a belief system was a way that the nation controlled the masses. It meant that the priests, the temples, the prophets, and everything around that religion were employed by the king to support the king. So the religion in those cultures was a tool to bring about unity and keep social order. So it's natural for Naaman to take his letter to the king because the assumption was that Israel's God worked in the same way as every other religion did. But look at how the king of Israel responds. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? The king basically says, of all the nations, Naaman, of every single option you had outside of there, you chose the one where God doesn't work like that. The God of Israel is not what you expect. Israel's God is not an extension of the authority of the king. He's not a tame God tied to culture. He's not a tool to control the masses. The king of Israel tears his clothes because God is independent of him and transcendent above all nations and all peoples. And he's not going to simply pander to an individual person's whims, no matter how important that person is. And it's so relevant for us today. Because when you analyze any primary school RE curriculum today, you'll find it focuses on culture and festivals and customs. So the average RE curriculum teaches exactly what Naaman believed 2,700 years ago. That God is just an extension of culture. It teaches us you can be stuck in the past, even in 21st century UK. It's sad that for all our sophistication, culturally, we still think the same as Naaman did about religion. Religion is just an extension of culture. But Israel's king knew, didn't he? The living God's not like that. And I tell you what, the living God today is not like that. Why? Because Christianity is the only religion where culture doesn't matter. Have you noticed that? 
What do I mean by that? Well, take Islam, for example. When you trace the spread of Islam, you also trace the spread of, spread of Islamic culture, Islamic art, Islamic arch- architecture, Islamic dress, Islamic customs. For example, if you want to truly read the Quran, you have to read it in Arabic. A, a translation of the Quran doesn't work. In other words, if you want to deepen your understanding of Allah, you have to become more culturally Islamic. But with Christianity, it's the gospel message that is important, not the culture. So Christians worldwide can read the Bible in their own language and in their own culture and still experience the love of God speaking to them. Even in an Islamic culture, you can be a Christian and know the same experience of God. Christians all over the world can be culturally themselves, but still have that same encounter with the living God. Isn't that amazing? The living God is never a tool to control the masses. He's not in a neat and tidy box described by cultural traditions and festivals. And when we realize his power and might and authority and transcendency, then we realize there is nothing that we can do to make him bend to our will. There's no money, there's no status, there's no connections, there's no deeds that will work with God. He is the God we do not expect him to be. And I hope that's a deep comfort for everybody here. Because being untamable and transcendent, it means our God is living, not tied down, not bound to a culture. He will meet us personally where we are at. Isn't that a joy? Rather than require us to be something or do something in order to be accepted by him. And you'll know a church that truly loves him. Because it will be a multicultural church. It will be a multi-ethnic church, a multi-ability church, a church in absolute diversity because it's a church that knows and loves the living God and not a church culture. It will be a church that loves and knows God who meets with us personally and individually and not because we're able to express our specific culture correctly. There is the living God, and we love him. That's the first shift. The second shift this morning is we need to shift away from assuming God will give us what we want. We need to shift away from assuming God will give us what we want. I love the subtlety of the writer in verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him a message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now on the face of it, it seems that Elisha's missed the point of Naaman's journey, doesn't it? He doesn't say, "Um, uh, king, send him here and I'll heal him. I'll deal with the problem. No, he says... Send him here, and he will know the living word of God. Why does he say that? Well, we have to remember that throughout the book of Two Kings, the writer speaks and writes about the prophets as bearers of the truth and the preachers of God's direct words in Israel. And and we've got to understand that subtlety and that, that almost clarity. It's blatant. He wants 
to, to, to help see that those prophets weren't just saying what they thought God would say in that situation. It's not a kind of uh, suck it out of my thumb and I'm just going to write down what I, I feel God would imagine to be saying here. No, no, no. When, when the prophets speak in two kings, when you get such a message like this, it is as if they are speaking the very words of God, the literal words that God would say in that situation like a megaphone. That's what you've got to imagine as you read the words of a prophet. They are the megaphone of God, God's very words being spoken out. They are powerful and they are transformative. They are the fullest revelation of the living God in that place. And this message to the king, therefore, is not Elisha's words. It's not what he feels God might want to say. It's actually directly from God himself. It's God's megaphone speaking into the world. And the message is this. And it's a beautiful message. And let me tell it to you really slowly and carefully and clearly. God is going to give Naaman such a personal revelation of God that it was going to change him in a way he could never imagine. And it's a kind of encounter that God has with individuals throughout the Bible. In Mark chapter 2, a paralyzed man is brought to Jesus by his friends. And they had heard that he was a healer and had the power to cure their friend who had been paralyzed. But rather than immediately heal the man, which is what everybody's expecting. You've got this massively crowded room. There's no place to move. And the paralyzed man is lying on the floor. And there's almost this, this, this whisper from everybody's heart. Heal him. Heal him. Heal him. And the pressure is enormous for Jesus to just touch the man and get him up. But instead he says to this, he says this to the man. Son, your sins are forgiven. And he says it because although the man wants to be healed, that's what he wants, what everybody wants, what everybody expects, what everybody desires, Jesus says that he really, really, really needs a deep soul cleansing, such as only can be done by the forgiving power of God the Son. And in the same way, Naaman just wants the cure for his leprosy. But God says to him, don't assume that when you meet the living God, you will merely get what you want so you can walk away and carry on life like you used to. Don't assume that. That's trivial. No, when you encounter God, you will receive riches, spiritual life that will blow you away and change your soul. That's what God is saying so that you will know that there is a prophet at the mouth of God in Israel. It tells us God's gifts go beyond what we want. He gives us what we need. And whereas what we want might be a temporary fix from God for our current sufferings or our troubles, what he gives to us is an, is an eternal transformation of our spirits. And today, we have to realize the generosity of God's offer for each of us. I, I realize, and I, I can't imagine some of the suffering that we are experiencing this morning and we're going through this morning. I can't get my head around it. And I, 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 I've heard of, I know some of the suffering that some of us are going through. Others are deeply disturbed by the effects of the pandemic on, on, on their mental health. 
Some of us are just confused, spiritually confused. Some of us are haunted by our dark past and don't know how to be rid of it. And those are all reasons to seek God, but understand his generosity as you do so. Because not only will he guide you through your suffering, not only will he hold your hand in your deepest, darkest moments, but he will reveal himself to you as you seek him. And he will do something much more than you want. He will give you what you need, which is forgiveness of sin. As I said, I don't know where you are this morning, but will you start there? And in your heart, pray to God, Lord God, you know what I want, but even more than that, I understand you know what I need. Please give me both. Please hold my hand in my deepest sufferings, in my darkest time, but even more, please, please, please heal my soul. It might be your first time here, and it might be the first time you've encountered God's word in this way. Well, will you see how similar your situation is to Naaman's situation? It might be you've come to church wanting comfort or community, but his word says this, I want you to have something much more an eternal salvation, and an intimate knowledge of the true and living God. Will you reach out to God for that this morning? It might be that we've been coming to this church for years and years and years, and yet all we've encountered is culture. All that we've wanted from church is culture, good friends, good support, nice people, a place to go on a Sunday morning. But this morning God is saying to you, don't you want much more than that? Don't you want to meet with me? Don't you want me to transform your soul so you have an intimate knowledge of the personal love of the living God? Don't you want to live a life that is so sold out for him that when you come to the end of it, your greatest privilege and pleasure is to hear the wonderful words of Christ, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my kingdom. It might be that we're just struggling with our personal walk with God. It might be that we have an issue of unforgiveness. We can't talk to someone in this church because we just can't forgive them. It might be that our quiet times have faded into non-existence, that our souls are so dry because of those things. Well, God is saying to you this morning, understand his generosity and revel in it. Revel in the forgiveness that has been won by God the Son and extend that forgiveness to someone else. Revel in the intimacy that is shared by God the Holy Spirit and understand that he brings us into the presence of God each time we pray. Revel in the love that has been lavished upon us by God the Father and immerse ourselves in it through worship, through prayer, through service, through fellowship, through, through that great reading of God's word. And it might be many months of a disciplined struggle from this point on. To re-establish quiet times, to re-establish community, to re-establish disciplines that we've forgotten. But surely that struggle is worth the reward at the end of it. Why? Because we meet with the living God. Just understand the generosity of God in something as simple as prayer. It blows my, it utterly blows my mind away. To consider how prayer is, in in other cultures, just a way of controlling the masses. Other religions, it's just how to control the masses. But with our living God, as we pray, we we enter in our spirits into the very throne room of God. We sit at his footstool and we worship the creator of the universe. It's not a figment of our imagination. It's a reality as real as tomorrow is Monday. And don't let your soul 
think any otherwise. Don't convince yourself prayer is nothing other than that, speaking to the true and living God and entering into his very presence in your soul and your spirit. That is the generosity of God. That is God's offer to us this morning through his words. Naaman went to Elisha for a healing, (laughs) but God gave him way much more. Naaman comes to Elisha for his dreams to be restored. But what Elisha promises is that his dreams would be rewritten. That is what it means to shift away from assuming God will give us what we want. No. God will give us what we need. The last thing this morning that this passage teaches us is this shift into doing God God's way. Shift into doing God God's way. The story continues from verse 9. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Naaman still hasn't worked out that his entourage doesn't impress the living God. I love it. So the whole procession winds from the king of Israel down to Elisha's shack, and it's a powerful message. It's, a, it's, like, it's, it's like power dressing. He, he's arrived, he's got his chariots and his horses, and he's expecting God to be impressed. And he's expecting God to respond with something bigger. But look what happens next. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. God's teaching a lesson here. Rather than coming out to to meet Naaman, Elisha shockingly sends a little messenger to tell Naaman to do something humiliating. Have a bath in a scabby little river. In other words, the cure is not about status and riches and connections, which is everything that Naaman is. The cure is for the humble who will listen to the word of God. And... Obey it. That's why Naaman is incensed. Look at verse 11. Naaman went away angry and said, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. He's wanting fireworks. He's wanting his his power dressing to be responded to in an appropriate way. Get out your magic Harry Potter wand and say something Harry Potter-ish over it. Instead, he's got to do something disgusting. He's wanting God to do God his own way, Naaman's way. That's why he's cross. God's not doing God my way is why he's angry. And it's a power struggle that summarizes the very core of every single one of us in this room. And looking at this online, it's an attitude called sin. And that word sin describes where we say to God that we want you to dance to our tune. God, we want you to be the God that we want you to be. We want you to listen to our message. Here I am, power dressing, respond. We want you to bow to our status and our money and our connections and our expectations. God, you've got to do God my way. That's what sin is. We want God to see what our idols mean to us and to affirm us in our idolatry. 
And that is the attitude that is at our hearts, and it's why we get cross with God. Everybody does it. But in the end, the question is, who's going to submit to who? That's the bottom line, isn't it? Who's going to submit to who? Will we, as sinners before the Almighty God, submit to God's word and obey it? Or will we continue to expect God to submit to us and get cross? And that's where Naaman's servant steps in. I love the story, by the way. Last week we looked at how a little servant girl um, said, go, to see the, 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 um, go, go and see the prophet. Go and see the prophet. The lowest of the low person in, her, in, 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 his, in his life. Go and see the prophet. And here again, the lowest of the low person in his life says, look, Naaman, just give it a chance. Verse 13, Naaman's son went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? It's a bit of a no-brainer. But Naaman's problem is that he's so used to being the kingpin, he resents needing a savior for himself. He's so used to prowess and great deeds on the battlefield that to be asked to do something that anyone can do is an insult to his ability. And yet God's message is simply this, Naaman, you've got to do God God's way. You do. You have to turn away from that attitude. And listen to my word. And obey it. Because I'm dealing with your heart, Naaman. And you can see that because Naaman obeys God, doesn't he? Verse 14, so he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Naaman listened and obeyed and was healed. Miraculously, God took away every bit of that terrible disease and gave him complete healing. But let me make this very, very clear this morning. His cure is not the big story. His cure is not the big story. And if we're teaching this story to young children, please don't make it about healing. I I remember my Sunday school teacher used to teach this story, and she used to tell us that God is the God God of the impossible, so believe in him. And and I I remember distinctly, and this is like hundreds of years ago almost, um, at least it's another millennium um, ago, uh, that... um, that she had a beautiful blue scarf and she'd lie it on the floor and she'd pick one of us out and, and we'd out-count the story and the person she picked out would kind of have this bath in, in the scarf and, and they'd kind of pick up the scarf and wash themselves with the scarf and they'd get up and then come out of the river uh, and then they'd go again and, and seven, you know, the whole Sunday school, you can imagine, seven times they acted this out and then, and then, uh, and, and then at the end of it, you know, at the seventh time, hey presto, the magic happened, he, he was healed. But unwittingly, my Sunday school teacher was teaching us that if we do what God wants, then we'll get what we want. Do you see the subtlety of that? That's why we cannot say the big point of this passage is the cure. Instead, look with me at verse 15. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world 
except Israel. It's not about the cure, is it? Oh, it happens, yes, verse 14, blah, blah. It happens. He gets healed. It's, you know, his baby's, he's got, he gets baby skin. But the writer says, so what? So what? Let me show you the real miracle here. The real healing that will make your toes curl with the generosity of God's love. And notice Naaman in verse 15 doesn't say, well, I know your God is better than my God's. And he doesn't say, you know, I'll bear the God of Israel in mind next time I come and invade. No, the nature of the real miracle is that it drives him out of his false beliefs and into the arms of God. Naaman went into that river in reluctant obedience, gritting his teeth. But as he obeyed God, he realized that the God of Israel was a God like no other. He had to obey this God. He had to submit his will to this God. He had to surrender his life to this God. He had to take away all his power dressing and do what this God said. So that his status meant nothing. His connections meant nothing. His power meant nothing. He had to simply obey and believe and trust. That's the true and living God's way. He expects us to give our whole lives, our whole hearts to him in obedience. Because obedience to God's word is doing God God's way. And that is the miracle here. And the process was humiliating. It was humbling. But isn't that the case for all of us? Isn't it the case for all of us that, who are Christians here this morning that we have to put aside who we are and come to God only carrying our sinful heart and our attitude and say to God, look God, I'm so sorry. This is my heart. This is what I'm like. I, I, I don't want you to be God, but I know I have to declare you as God and obey you as God. And that's all I am. And that's the big important thing. And obeying God's word for Naaman was the only way he could be cured and the only way he could encounter the living God. And that's the miracle. He submitted to the power of the word of God and learned that God alone is God and there is no other. It's a transformative statement, isn't it? And the question is, will we listen to God's word this morning? It might be you have no idea where you are spiritually. And in your heart, there rages this battle of wills. I want to do God my way. I want God to submit to what I expect of him. I don't want to do God God's way. And yet, you know from this story, from what God is saying to us this morning, thus saith the Lord, you cannot do God any other way. You have to obey God and listen to his word and submit to his authority and follow him for the rest of your life. Follow the pattern of the story. Naaman's greater miracle. And realize that offer of entry into a relationship with the living God is for us this morning. And I love, I love the Bible. I love the way it works because this is not just a story, but it's also a prophecy. I, told, I said last week, I went on a bit last week about how, how there's a subtle humor in, in the writings of two kings. But it's here again. It's here again. Because, because the story is also a prophecy, 
So as Naaman understands and knows that there is a prophet in all of Israel, so too, as we realize and read this story, it points, to a, it points as a prophecy to the greater prophet, Jesus Christ. 700 years later, God sent Jesus into the world, who was a greater prophet than Elisha. And he is, he is still the fullest revelation of who God is. He is God's mouthpiece. He is, if you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus. And he knew what we wanted from God, and yet in his love, he gave us what we needed from God. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, God the Son, came and died on a cross, and as he died, he took the punishment from God for our sin. And in doing so, a greater cleansing, a greater washing took place. As his blood was shed, it meant that all who trust in him will be washed, will be cleansed from their sin. Everybody who goes to Jesus Christ, the living God, and says to him, I believe that what you did on the cross is for, for me personally so that I personally can have a relationship with God. Everyone who believes that will be washed, will be cleansed, just like Naaman was washed and cleansed. Why? Because just like Naaman had to obey the word of God and do God God's way, this is God God's way for us today. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be washed clean from your sin. That is God's promise. That is God's way. And not only is God's way through Jesus Christ, but that's how we live our lives with Jesus Christ at the center, at the, at the head of it, and follow him in obedience. That is doing God, God's way. And if we have any sense in us, we will listen to God's word and examine ourselves. What is it about us that says, ah, oh, I just don't like that? Ah, it means I have to let go of that. I have to let go of my status or, or perhaps my money or, or even, even the way I love church as culture. We have to let go of it and believe and trust in Jesus. Do God God's way and declare him as the one who takes away my sin and the one who is my Lord, whom I will follow for the rest of my life. I love that about Naaman. He comes out of that water, he takes the whole entourage back to Elisha's shack, and he says, do you know, Elisha, you were so, so right. Now I know there is no other God in the world, which means there is only one God to follow. That's the logic of what he's saying. I'm not going to stand God up next to my God of women or, or, or my, my, you know, my other, the other gods even that were in Israel. I'm not going to stand him up next to him. No, there's only one God I will serve now and follow and declare and love. That is Naaman's way. And, he, and he, it's a pattern that he sets. He's a prophecy that says one word of God will come into this world. His name is Jesus. And all who obey him and believe and trust in him will also declare him as the Lord of their lives. I wonder whether that's happened to you this morning. If it's not, please, come and speak to me. Come and speak to the person um, you've come with, or speak to the person you've come with. Speak to a Christian you know and trust. Ask them about what it is to declare Jesus as your Savior, the one who washes away your sin, and your Lord, the one you declare as the only God in the world. There's a beautiful old hymn 
which summarizes this story beautifully and summarizes how this story points forward to today's washing and cleansing by Jesus. It goes like this. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow of that blood that makes me white as snow before God. No other fount, no other fountain I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Naaman's a wonderful prophecy, isn't he? He's a walking, living arrow pointing to Jesus. What can wash away our sin this morning? Nothing but the blood of Jesus if you've not trusted in him today. Well, please say in your heart, Lord Jesus Christ, my heart is the same as Naaman's. Full of sin, full of rebellion, but I need to obey you, and this morning I do. Please wash away my sin because of Jesus. Please make me whole again because of Jesus. May I declare your glory and to everyone that I follow you and you alone, that there is no other God in all the world apart from Jesus. Let's pray now. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you for your word this morning. Forgive us, Lord God, for for not realizing the gracious gift that your salvation is. But this morning, as your word has shown us just the majesty and power and might of all your generosity, of your grace, Father, may once more we be amazed and blown away by it. Lord God, may we be stunned and awestruck and humbled by the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross to take away our sin. And Lord God, may we wash ourselves in it, in the beautiful promise that it represents, that forgiveness comes through Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning that in whatever way we are doing God our way, that we would put it aside and obey you and follow you and immerse ourselves in your living word so that we might know you more and more and more and more personally and immerse ourselves in your ways and your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.